Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Finarne Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And today we have with us Chris Pearson, who's Senior Lecturer in 20th Century History at the University of Liverpool. Uh, and he's here to talk about his new book, Dogopolis, How Dogs and Humans Made Modern New York, London and Paris. Came out of the University of Chicago Press uh, in 2021. So we'll just leave it to you, Chris. Great. Thanks very much. And thanks for the invitation to speak today. And thanks, everyone, um, for coming along. Um, so yeah, I'll speak for about uh, 10, 15 minutes, and then we'll hand over to questions. So yeah, what I'll do is I just thought I'd just um, introduce um, the book and what it's trying to achieve and, and the chapters. Maybe save you reading it if you haven't already um, done so. We don't want to read the whole thing. So um, what I thought I'd do then, yeah, is just really think about this um, this concept of dogopolis, which what I'm describing as is this uh, model of Western human canine relations that emerged in modern London, New York and Paris. And we could probably introduce other cities into that mix as well. Um, I chose not to because of time and constraint and also <laughs> language um, limitations as well. But I think it'd be interesting to think about how we would expand that, that out to other cities as well. So in the book, I describe Dogopolis as the arrangement that arose amongst the middle classes of London, New York and Paris on how urban dogs should co-inhabit the modernizing city with uh, human urbanites. Between 1800 and the 1930s, dogs and humans were thrown together in these three rapidly expanding cities. And this generated a whole host of feelings, love, compassion, disgust and fear. Dogs were eventually integrated into city life in line with middle-class emotional values that centered on revulsion at dirt, fears of vagabondage, anxieties about crime and the promotion of humanitarian sentiments. By the late 1930s, fears of biting and straying dogs had diminished. Canine death had been rendered mostly acceptable through the management of canine suffering and dogs fulfilled emotional roles as pets and as police dogs, who in theory would soothe worries about criminality. The first steps had also been taken to reduce the disgust provoked by canine defecation. Underscoring this transformation was the actual and perceived ability of, bond, of dogs to bond emotionally with humans. And this was at the time, probably know of Darwinism when scientific theories were suggesting that there was this strong link between the species emotionally, but also in terms of the way their minds worked, comparative um, psychology. So these emotionally charged transnational attempts to harness, constrain or eliminate canine straying, biting, suffering, thinking and defecating became part of the making of Western urban modernity. And Dogopolis, this agreement between middle classes did not obliterate earlier aspects of human dog relations. Some dogs kept on straying and biting and dog mess, as you uh, probably know, um, at least if you live in Britain, remains an unresolved problem. But the place of dogs within the Western city was assured and the model of urban human dog cohabitation was established within which um, Western urbanites still reside. Okay, so that's the main um, kind of pitch of the book, the main argument. 
<clears throat> which I'm hoping will contribute to literatures on urban history, histories of emotions, animal history, obviously, and history of medicine. Um, the way I've written the book, though, <laughs> it may not be that apparent. I try to do it as a book that might appeal to general readers as well as academics. So I've kind of put a lot of the academic apparatus in the footnotes and in an appendix. Um, so hopefully that's worked. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Well, I'll have to wait and see. So what I'll do now then is I'll, I'll um, talk about each chapter in turn, starting off with straying. So in this chapter, I try and show how growing number of middle-class commentators viewed straying dogs with disgust and fear. And these, fe these fears, these feelings sprung from encounters with stray dogs and also wide anxieties about urban life. Attempts to manage and remove strays were marked by actual and rhetorical violence, roundups, and the creation of pounds. And I just want to quickly um, share my screen. This is uh, an image uh, from Harper's Weekly in 1883, once the, um, the pounds in New, in New York had been established for about 30 years or so. What I argue in the book is that the pound became this center of, for management of urban human uh, urban, sorry, human canine relations in um, in the modern city. In London, it was um, the Batsy Dogs home that took on this function. But this is where um, street dogs were collected, returned to wealthy owners, as is the case here, or they were ultimately um, sold or, for the main part, killed. So the pound is a really central site. And this image um, I really like because I think you get a hint of maybe what the dogs are experiencing. And if you look at the, um, the wooden uh, barrier here, you can see how it's been gnawed by, by dogs, presumably um, nervous dogs. And um, yeah, I think it's a nice detail that the artist has, um, has picked up here. Um, okay, so dogs went into the pound, but sympathetic Londoners, New Yorkers and Parisians defended straying dogs and argued that they deserve protection against cruelty. They depicted strays as emotional creatures who had lost their way in the metropolis and could be redeemed through enlightened care and attention. And that's basically the narrative of Battersea Dogs Homes and those that followed. Stray dogs for animal protectionists and others could be brought into the city and cruelty could be banished. However, middle-class love and care for dogs was increasingly directed towards pedigrees and pet dogs who were drawn closer to shore up notions of civilization, domesticity and purity within the apparently dangerous and degenerate cityscape. So intensifying hostile feelings towards straying and the practice of empowerment that went with it became a bedrock of Dogopolis. The next chapter moves on to biting and still um, dwells on fears. It shows how um, urbanites responded to, to canine bites, particularly around rabies, which has been written on um, a fair bit, but I wanted to bring a more emotional angle to it as well as think about the transnational history of rabies. So um, there was a, a huge fear of rabies in London, New York and Paris, as Neil Pemberton and others have shown, and this went way beyond the actual extent of the disease. Muzzling, impoundment, killing on the streets, 
these are ways of combating rabies. But it wasn't until Louis Pasteur's rabies vaccine announced with much fanfare in 1885 that there's a transnational transformation in the understanding and treatment of the disease, with his methods debated and copied in London and New York. And Pasteur was identified as a saviour and the jab, the vaccine, as the way of eliminating fears around this disease. Although, as we have now with COVID, there were um, plenty who opposed um, the vaccine. So as well as being a symbol of medical progress, supportive commentators presented Pasteur's vaccine as a way of calming rabies anxieties. However, this breakthrough did not fully quell the disease's emotional intensities and fears of dog bites persisted. And this again justified the roundup, the continued roundup and continued killing of street dogs. But there was a problem. How could all these street dogs uh, be be um, managed or eliminated in the modern city in line with middle-class humanitarian norms. And as many historians have shown, including those who work on animal protection, there was this, this rise of humanitarianism um, in the late 18th and early 19th century. Dogs were amongst those animals who deserved the most sympathy due to their heightened capacity to feel and make close bonds with humans. And there are countless tales of loyal pet dogs to suggest um, that canine sensitivity was real. So the challenge then was ways of integrating the slaughter of street dogs um, to create a street dog free cityscape to quell those fears of straying and biting in line with um, ideas around suffering. So I've got another image that I wanna show now. Yeah, so this is um, from a newspaper in 1858, again, of the New York Pound. And this was a, a horrific scene for animal protectionists and humanitarians. It shows um, young boys dragging dogs to the pound, trying to drown them in this tank. And um, the ones that didn't drown are being uh, literally beaten to death in the corner. So this is really the pound as a horrific site um, of brutality in which humans are being corrupted, brutalized, and particularly children are being um, brutalized. Um, so this was, yeah, horrific for animal protectionists. So their answer to this kind of slaughter and the slaughter that was taking place in, in Paris was hanging, which um, wasn't deemed to be much better. So the answer to this was the, the so-called um, arrival of humane slaughter the lethal chamber in which dogs could be um, could be put to death, uh, sorry, put to sleep, as the, as the phrase went, um, in a humane and kind way. And the lethal chamber was touted by animal protectionists and public hygienists and others as a way of resolving this problem of how to how to kill street dogs in a humane way. And it allowed the killing of, um, of countless street dogs. It's very hard to get figures, but we're looking at hundreds of thousands, if not millions um, of street dogs that were killed in this way. Okay, the, the next chapter then, um, the suffering chapter is definitely the, the grimmest chapter. The next chapter moves on to looking at thinking and how um, ideas about psychology and also fears of crime mesh together to create the street, uh, the police dog. 
This was a specialized form of canine labor that gave a select handful of dogs social purpose within the emerging dogopolis. Alongside pedigree and pet dogs, police dogs had the potential to be welcomed into the modern city. They were seen as being able to bond effectively with humans and they would help soothe middle-class anxieties around crime, which fixated um, on gangs in Paris, the Apaches, was particularly focused on immigration um, in New York. Police dog handlers, trainers and supporters all described the emotional attachment between the handler and the dog developed during training, which would make the dog serve the police officer. And there are also lots of debates around how dogs could, could sense and know who was and who wasn't a criminal. Biting was harnessed in this case against criminals, so dogs were released to bite and take down um, the suspected criminal. Um, so yeah, you've got this interesting thing about how biting was kind of like feared with rabies, but also was harnessed within Dogopolis. However, there were massive problems with the creation of police dog units around training, around funding, and also fears around the continuing biting of these dogs. So many of these units diminished just after the First World War, only to be revived again um, after the Second World War. The final chapter then uh, looks at defecating, and I don't know what it says about me, but I found this one the most um, fun to write. And this tracks um, changing sensibilities towards canine feces. As human defecation became ever more private with the spread of lockable toilet and privy doors, and as roads and pavements became cleaner, Doctors, public hygienists, journalists, counsellors, and others identified dog mess as a threat to public health and decency. Disgust and the anger and fear that accompanied it, accompanied it sorry, went with it, um, focused on dogs' daily soiling of pavements and sidewalks. And I think this is a real tension between middle classes here. So there were largely, it seems, middle class feelings of disgust about dog mess, but the middle class dog owners were the ones blamed for allowing their dogs to foul or allowing their servants to um, allow the dogs to foul. Dog mess was deemed disgusting because it stank, it polluted city streets and it contaminated bodies. And this disgust led to action, as in the other chapters, to alter human-dog relations. It also combined with new medical knowledge about parasites, tapeworms and what lurked within dog mess to really positioned dog mess as a major threat to public health. And as rabies fears were diminished, then I think dog mess um, in the West became the main health worry. However, um, despite various campaigns to tackle street mess, whether that was um, introducing bylaws, as was the case in London, or um, municipal campaigns in New York, where the phrase curb your dog first came about in the 1930s, defecation continues to raise questions about the smooth integration of pet dogs within um, Dogopolis. So in conclusion then, what many people in the West now take to be the natural features of the human canine relationship were, I argue in this book, in fact rooted in the fraught emotional histories of urbanization in the modern West. The human canine bonds shifted within the broader class, gendered and racialized emotional contours of urban life, including fears of crime, vagabondage and disease, disgust at dirt and revulsion at suffering. 
Dogs were molded to fit middle-class values and norms, even if this process was always challenged and incomplete. Nonetheless, Dogopolis had arrived by the Second World War. Straying and biting were increasingly contained. Suffering was made bearable through humane killing. Thinking was harnessed through police dogs. And the first steps had been taken to, to curb defecating. Okay, so thanks very much for listening. That was a pretty much a, a whistle stop, whistle stop tour of the book. So any questions, um, please feel free to, to ask them. And that's Cassie making noise in the background, if you can hear that. Thanks, Chris. Um, that was a great introduction to your book um, and to the idea of Dogopolis, uh, since so many of us have, in fact, our, our dogs. Um, so these kind of assumptions that we make about the way that those human-dog relations work, but to really show that it has a history, I think is really important um, in this work. So one of the things um, in this the section on strays, then, and I was thinking about your descriptions of the pounds, um, I thought immediately of little orphan Annie, okay, and her stray Sandy that she picks up. So this this story, this kind of an, an American story about the the depression and uh, this orphan and her relationship with this stray dog. Um, and so I was wondering, actually, in the discussion of these strays and they've lost their way, were there comparisons made to people in the urban center that had lost their way or had, didn't have a family like orphans? Yeah, that's a really good question. And yeah, there are lots, lots of comparisons around that. So Susan J. Pearson, no, no, no um, relation of mine, um, she's written a book um, about that came out of Chicago again about 10 years ago, which looks at the links between animal protection and child welfare. What's it called? In Defense of the Defenseless, I think it's called, um, where she really goes into this in a lot of detail. Um, but yeah, I, I found that as well in my research, particularly around Battersea, there's lots of discussion around the dogs homeless being a refuge for, for stray or lost dogs and how this would kind of echo refuges for, for orphans, children who had lost their way in the modern city as well and they were um the home the dog's home really sort of sold itself as being a refuge where it would redeem dogs it would reshape them it would um, rehabilitate them ready for going to new homes the pounds were um didn't have that narrative so much and i think the main fear around children vis-a-vis -vis the pound was that children would be be brutalized by bringing dogs to the pound, particularly in New York. There are lots of reports in the press about um, uh, teenagers and, and younger children, mainly boys, going around rounding up dogs, selling them to dog catchers, who then sold them onto the pound. So, um, yeah, there was a fear that around children um, and the pound as well. Again, thinking about children too, um, with dog mess as well. A lot of the fears really rested on how dog mess would pose a threat to to children, in particular. Um, so in Paris, there were it been to Paris, but in the boulevard, you've kind of got sandy areas in the middle. There are lots of reports about how dogs would defecate there, then children would play in those sandy areas, and they get like tapeworms and um, so they'd um, yeah ingest tapeworm eggs and, and so on. So it was there was lots of um, concerns around children. Um, yeah, so I think. It, be quite good to think a bit more about those links between like children and dogs in in this period 
more so than I was able to do in the book. Well, and then in that the description, you talked about the Battersea home. And what I found really interesting then about that is, is yes, that they're using the word home there as, as their framework versus pound. Um, so I was wondering where that specific impetus to think of it as a home was coming from. Was it workhouses, um, you know, and or that kind of, of institution that existed that, that they were looking to? And then if if that was it, you know, in thinking about the, the 19th century and the idea of workhouse and, and, you know, making people into better people, did they have any attempts to make the dogs into better dogs? You know, did, did people go about training them or putting them to work as as working animals? Um, so I don't know if anyone else knows, but I, mean, I haven't found out exactly why home was was chosen. I think it was, but reading around the some of the narratives around it and the ways in which the owners and the um, the organisers of the, the home portrayed, portrayed themselves and very much a really, really strong sense on domesticity, which fitted in with the whole Victorian cult of domesticity, as you um, probably all know. And there were lots and lots of um, reports of how the, the women who ran the committee, they'd run like sales and they'd have charity events and, and so on to kind of generate money for it. It had a very sort of domestic feel to it. Um, within the home as well, um, it was felt that yeah, the dogs would be, once they were off the streets, they were away from the kind of dangers of the, of the street, they would be happier, they'd be clean, they'd be fed better. So yeah, it was a way of like saving dogs from the harshness of, as it was perceived, the harshness of, um, of urban life. Um, and, but I, I haven't found any sense of the dogs being put to work within the home. Um, although they were they were sold um, for other kinds of work, i.e. they were sold to um, scientists and to vivisectionists for um, experimentation. So I guess the dogs had a unwitting form of labor there. So those are the, those are the dogs who um, were probably ownerless or were so um, ill that they, they couldn't really be homed. They would often be sold on to to vivisectionists or to or to renderers who would um, transform into other products. So yeah, there was a kind of they they formed other parts. They formed part of the sort of blood and gut guts economy of um, of the city in that way. So I wanted to ask a little bit about the other animals in the city. Uh, you know, in the same period, do dogs have a similar trajectory to them i think particularly when it comes to i mean excrement uh you know horses for example generate a lot of it uh do you have the same kind of discussions uh around other animals other types of waste or any other like parallel discussions where you see dogs are similar or different yeah that's another really good question so yeah, with horse mess in these cities, and I guess other ones too, there, there were worries about the smell, and particularly um, when it was uh, when it was hot and the, the the manure would would go very dry and then sort of blow around the city. There was there were lots of concerns um, around that. 
so yeah there are links there with dog mess and i argue in the book there's actually the, the removal of horse manure um at the end of the 19th early 20th century when um motor cars and trains and subways and so on took took over as forms of urban transportation that's the horses were kind of gradually removed from the city and that's when the pavements were kind of this blank canvas for the dog mess to be um to be seen on and deposited on i think there are also other um uh species that we can draw parallels with in other ways so i mean cats is the obvious one um kathleen key in her book beast in the boudoir and hilda keen in her you know current work on cats in the city i mean they are you know they're showing how cats were um were pets were sometimes used to to hunt vermin and also um there were lots of concerns around cruelty towards cats cat skinning and so on just as there were concerns around cruelty towards dogs you also in terms of like the section you had people worried about monkeys being um uh experimented on but i think within all of this i mean i guess i'm sort of biased because i'm interested in dogs but i think dogs are kind of i would say that they probably played more roles and feel free to disagree with me anyone um i sort of feel like they played more roles within the city they were there were workers and sometimes that was quite manual labor like pulling dog carts or highly specialized ass um uh ass uh police dogs they were they were pets in various forms either pets in the house or um dogs or pet dogs who were allowed to roam the streets they were seen as vermin they were um seen as like public health problems um as well as agents of public health because some people said street dogs are great they go around eating loads of waste off the streets this is this is brilliant um and also this i mean this long-standing narrative and i think it's more than narrative it's, you know, it's, it's a thing that humans and dogs bond, bonded together this long-term relationship um which i think gave it a particular emotional charge to um to what was going on um yeah Great, thanks very much. Great. Um, we have a question from Karen. So I will go up there and find you and unmute. Okay. Uh, thanks, Chris, for a wonderful talk. Fascinating to hear. And I'm I, I'm not quite sure if my question is a question or a comment or uh, what, but whatever. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, issues of ownership and control. It seems to me that uh, th this is key to, uh, I mean, the dogs are a problem as, as long as they don't have an owner. And I've looked into uh, um, instructive books about dog training in Sweden uh, from fairly the same period or the earliest ones are from the early uh, 20th century. And uh, I'm surprised also at the actually the level of acceptance of dogs. Uh, you can find in these uh, books uh, things like uh, uh, make sure to make sure to have your dog house trained before you take it to the movies or to a restaurant, which would be completely bizarre to us today. Uh, but it seems to me that there's a great difference also from the the from that period in in relation to to nowadays 
uh, in how where you can take your dog and what you can do. There seems to have been a lot more dogs in the cities, it seems to me, or at, la at least a lot more dogs without an owner. Yeah, I think I'd agree with all of that. Um, it does seem that dogs have much more <laughs> freedom within the city, whether they were pet dogs or particularly street dogs who, you know, if you, if you believe what you read, you know, they were sort of everywhere on the streets, lounging around on bridges. They were going into, into markets and elsewhere. Like they were, they seemed pretty ubiquitous um, within the city. Um, yeah, and with the, it's interesting what you're saying about the, the dog care books. Like some of the books I read, I guess mainly written by aristocratic men um, who had like kennels in their country home. They were much more like, oh no, dogs should really be kept in the countryside. Um, that's the place for dogs. And other other dog owners, sorry, other, other books aimed at dog owners who are much more aimed at the urban market. They were like, yeah, dogs can be, it's fine. Dogs can be integrated in the city. You just got to think about how to do it. Um, so yeah, there's a real difference there between um, advice given out to dog owners and these debates around the place that dogs should have in in the city. I mean, part of the reason I got interested in this project um, way back when in the the late noughties was because I was doing some research in Paris on a different project, and I kind of noticed how there were lots of dogs in Paris compared to the UK. Um, so that got me thinking about it. One one moment struck struck me when um, there was a guy in a bar and his dog just kind of like went up on the bar and drank out of his beer and I thought okay I've not seen that in Britain before um so there must be you know there, there does seem to be much more acceptance of dogs in Paris so that's why I was kind of um got me got me thinking about this and think, got me thinking in a transnational way as well yeah yeah I think that transnational part has come up in a couple of questions in the chat because that is interesting to think about I mean Karen's comment that um you know it wouldn't be accepted to have your dog in the places that she's reading these manuals within Sweden yeah so there must have been a shift because certainly in Germany they're everywhere I mean they sit under every table in every restaurant um in every shop people walk in with their dogs uh at least when i've been there so um that there's differences even within this thing we we call europe um and so the question is uh, on this transnational element your three cities new york london paris what were the major differences that you saw in this formative time period of the dogopolis mm -hmm. yeah um yeah thank you i think and whoever asked that question in the chat as well. Uh, Jane, yeah, thanks, thanks as well. Um, yeah, so I think I would stress that the similarities outweighed the differences with, between the three cities, but that said, there were, there were differences. So um, I think Britain was rightly or wrongly seen as kind of like a beacon of uh, the model of human-dog relations. Um, French and American breeders and dog experts look to Britain to um, as kind of the place where breeds, kennel clubs were being developed. And of course it was the kennel club that came out of Britain initially and then was opened up in New York and, and Paris. Also Britain with the RSPCA was an early um, animal protection laws was seen as like a beacon of progress for animal protection as well. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, 
I'm British, but I'm very happy to <laughs> to bash British nationalism and bash British exceptionalism. So, I mean, there might have been some truth in that, but um, there was obviously innovation in other cities um, around the world and other countries around the world in terms of um, working with and, and breeding dogs. Um, another interesting difference was around Pasteur and muzzling and how to treat rabies. So the British placed a lot of emphasis on muzzling, which didn't have such an impact in um, in France and in the US, where there was, I think, more faith in pasteurization and Pasteur and his methods, um, with the Pasteur Institute being opened in New York, which there wasn't one in, in London, despite it being a very you know, much, much closer to get from um, Paris to, to London. So that was a big difference. In terms of police dogs as well, um, it wasn't Paris and, New York had the all-purpose police dog that was established before the First World War. In London, they experimented with that, but for various reasons, it never really took off the ground. And in some ways, um, that was really around kind of resources and um, I think the will of certain police officers to get things done or not. So yeah, there were there were these there were these differences. But I would really stress that this this um, revulsion at street dogs, dog mess really was kind of like quite common amongst all these cities. And actually having, just remember another thing as well, that um, the lethal chambers, you know, technology was shared across these cities. Uh, Gordon Bennett, who was, um, who owned the New York Herald or one of the New York newspapers, he gave some money to the Paris shelter to install a lethal chamber. So yeah, lots of different connections in that way. All right, Sarah has a question. Hi everyone. Um, hi Chris, thank you so much hi. for the talk and also the book. I absolutely loved it and it came at just the perfect time for me because I'm, I'm interested in kind of how dogs fit into society and getting that historical <clears throat> kind of his the history of it was amazing. Um, and I was kind of just wondering about your time period and um, kind of maybe why you selected that. Um, and do you, because I know that I think it was in your introduction maybe where you said that Although yes, there's changes that happened after the period you were looking at, but you think that this is the period that is most important and every change after that kind of came from this. But do you kind of think there's like a, I guess maybe like a Dogopolis part two that could be written? Or do you think actually, you know, things, for example, like the, it seems like there was a lot less straying <clears throat> after the 1970s um, and especially in America with like the idea of dog overpopulation and those fears. And also like the rabies scare, I think it was like 1969, maybe in Britain. Um, <clears throat> and then even, um, yeah, so just uh, maybe that kind of, and I thought it was really interesting as well with the, the in the mess, <clears throat> sorry, um, the mess chapter where you were, there was like a, I think maybe it was at Paris, I can't remember where there was like a collective action, like the, the council or someone collected all the dog mess rather than the being the onus on individual, individual dog owners. Um, so yeah, I was just kind of wondering maybe, um, do you think that there could be like a part two or do you think a lot of those changes that were happening around 1970s, just it, it like, do you think there was changes that, um, or were all those changes came out of that period? So it was a long winded way to ask a very simple question, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good question though. It's uh, yeah. Thanks for your kind words too about the book. Um, yeah. So my sense is that, I think I agree with you, there were lots of changes around the 1970s. I think Neil Pemberton has also argued that and shown that too with some of his work around 
um, dog mess in in Britain. I think, um, yeah, I think you could, again, you could, and also obviously the poop scoop law in, in New York in 1978. So I think you could um, situate the 70s as a bit of a turning point. But I would, I guess I would argue that a lot of those changes that took place in the 70s around straying, around defecation, you know, those fears, those, some of those policies, they were all being like trials in the period I'm talking about. So I kind of see that, yeah, there were, there were changes after that, um, but I guess I argue and hopefully, hopefully reasonably convincing enough in the book that all these, all these changes were, they have their roots in the period that I'm looking at in the sort of the long 19th century. So I, I chose that period. I mean, I did think about taking it longer, but then I just kind of panicked because I always <laughs> was already struggling with dealing with three cities. So I thought I've got to, I've got to keep a sense of coherence here and um, a sense of making it manageable. Uh, that said, though, I am developing another book, which will hopefully be for a more general audience around um, the making of the, the modern dog more generally, which would go right up to the present day. So, um, yeah, I think I'll try and explore some of that in greater detail as well. But I think it's also, you know, there's obviously loads of other work on that topic as well around police dogs um, and, and so on that's really worth looking at, which you probably are already and others are as well. Um, so I, I'll draw on that in the book as well. Um, Yes, I think it's probably like a long-winded way of saying, I hope it makes sense what I've argued, but yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy for um, others to come along and kind of discover new things and suggest ways in which Dogopolis developed or didn't develop afterwards. I suppose also actually that I'd probably just say that medievalists and early modernists will say, well, actually you could look, <laughs> you could look even earlier and say, well, look, there's, you know, there were, there were um, culls of, street dogs in the in you know in the early modern period or there were fears about rabies and of course there were um i suppose what i'm saying is that it was urbanization that really kind of brought these things to a head and just brought dogs and humans together in such a, a lively way at this period that really kind of was a catalyst for the changes that i describe in the book one of the things um, in your discussion uh, of these chapters was that each of them also revolve around an emotion. Oh, so some kind of emotional reaction that people are having to these things. So bites, you're, you're afraid of, of a bite. Um, so I was wondering as a historian of emotions then, uh, how, did, how does that add to this story that you're trying to tell about the Dogopolis? What, what role do emotions have in, in creating it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, and also doing, in talking about emotions in the book, I'm also, you know, trying to build on build on your work as well and the work of others who have started to look at animals and emotions. So I think that the main um, starting point I wanted to to work with in the book was to think a bit more, as others have been doing, around the materiality of emotions, um, the ways in which humans respond to to objects or to animals in this case, um, and the way that those objects, animals, environments, whatever, have an impact on on human emotions. I was also really interested and inspired by um, Sarah Ahmad's point about um, emotions doing things that they make, that they're changes. So that, that's what I wanted to show in the book, that, that these, these emotions were important. We could talk about public health policies, we can talk about, um, you know, policing legislation, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think what was behind a lot of these, these changes was these underlying emotions. Um, whether that's fear or disgust or or love as well, care and compassion um, for for dogs. 
Um, yeah. And I think these emotions, they, they kind of saturated the press at the time. There were so many, like, you read anything about dogs in the, in this period in the newspapers and there are countless articles. You just, it's so emotional, whether it's anger or um, fear or love for dogs or compassion. And in the more specialised press, like the um, Animal Protection Society journals, again, it's just like <laughs> the love and the care and compassion is just sort of spilling over um, for these dogs. And also I think in medical texts as well, particularly around dog mess, like the sense of disgust is also there as well. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's what I was trying to do with the emotions. I did, when I was writing the book, I did think, oh, maybe I need to link this all to wider concepts in the history of emotions, whether that's emotional communities or emotional practices or or whatever. And I could see ways of doing that. And there were at least one or two drafts that had that had that in it. But in the end, I just decided to to kind of take that out to make it more accessible to, to non-academics. Um, but I don't, I don't know whether that's worked or not, whether that's a good idea, but that's what, that's really what I decided to, to do. So building on that then, because um, the emotions you're talking about here are human emotions, right? Uh, but to what degree were animal emotions or animal instinct, uh, you know, natural behaviors being considered in these debates? I mean, one area, for example, where, I mean, today I see that clearly is, you know, attitudes to uh, neutering and spaying dogs. Norway, you don't do that. It's unnatural. Uh, whereas in the US, uh, we also have dog experience from, it's, you know, absolutely expected you have to do that. Um, so, and, and I see part of the argument people use in Norway is that, you know, the animals are, we're supposed to let them have these emotions, this feeling of, while well, being a dog with natural instincts and uh, uh, dogness, dogness, <laughs> exactly. So, how much does that factor into these these histories? The dogness of dogs yeah. and their own, I guess, emotional responses to people. Too. Yeah, yeah. I'll answer that. But first, of all, I just wanted to go back to what Sarah was saying and what you were saying, Finn. Remind me about um, uh, spaying and neutering as being a massive change that I that came after the post-war period. So I think that would be something to look at in the post-dogopolis, at least in some countries. Um, and you can also you know, look to like India for centers of innovation in this, in this area. Uh, but to go back to the question about animal emotions, um, I would say that I suppose I sort of flirted, flirted with going down the route of saying that I can access animal emotions, but in the end, I sort of pulled back from that as an historian and full props to people that do that and I think maybe it's easier for anthropologists and and others working with living animals to kind of uncover some of those emotions um fully respect that but for myself I felt the sources I was reading and my ability to <laughs> to read them and interpret them didn't made me not want to go down the route of saying oh that dog felt fear or that dog was happy but I think there were lots of debates around animal emotions and having said all that actually when I think about my dog Cassie I go oh she's happy or I think she's anxious or whatever so yeah it's complicated but um I think uh there were lots of debates about dogs and what was natural for dogs and their instincts and how they should be controlled so sometimes that was debates around um, rabies and whether it was dogs emotions their emotional intensity 
fats, spart, rabies. Um, some dogs, particularly the Spitz dog in New York, they were singled out as being particularly irritable and dangerous um, uh, because of their emotions that could lead to, to rabies. There were debates around um, canine sexuality and that sexual urges were strong in rabies and that, uh, sorry, were, were so strong that could lead to rabies or those dogs, if those urges were not fulfilled, then it would lead to the generation of rabies. But, but also like, much more positive emotions around dogs. This idea about dogs as being loyal creatures around their love for humans, their willingness to sacrifice themselves for humans, the care that they feel for humans. I mean, these all, all integrate, we're all integrated into, into the debate. And I think this is really why there was this conundrum around street dogs that humane killing solved in inverted commas, that there was this wide discourse around dogs being emotionally sensitive creatures which was to some extent applied to street dogs. But then if they were emotionally sensitive and how could humans kill them in vast numbers? And that's the humane killing gave that, gave that kind of, um, gave the go ahead for that in, in many ways. Um, around the debates around police dogs as well, there are lots of debates around whether the canine instincts to bite, the ferocity, the beast within, could that actually be, be harnessed, be tamed by police dog trainers, or was that always going to kind of like spill out, break through the training and um, lead to, to injuries on the, on the city streets? So yeah, canine emotions are here. Ideas about canine emotions, assumptions about canine emotions. I hope they come out in Dogopolis, even if I've backed away from talking directly about, about canine emotions in the book. Gerard had a question about um, preferences then for dogs uh, within these urban spaces. So in this time period, do you see that people start a discourse about which dogs, you know, big dogs, small dogs, particular breeds um, are more suited for urban living uh, versus others? Or, you know, is it is it still kind of personal preference and what kind of dog you want to have in these cities? Yeah, I think personal preference plays a strong role. Um, but there are also lots of assumptions about um, the relationship between the countryside and the city and which dogs, which breeds belonged in the city, which dogs belonged in the countryside and to what extent there could be swap overs. So, so some owners of uh, breeders of dogs and sort of self-appointed dog experts suggested that their breeds shouldn't be election when it weren't suitable to the city. So there's, um, uh, William Ayres, I think his name was, if I remember correctly, who wrote about Airedales. He's saying you shouldn't have Airedales in the city. You can't have them in flats. Um, and others were suggesting a big dog should not be allowed in the city. But on the other hand, dogs who were bred in the countryside for, for rural tasks like sheep dogs, they were often those who were identified as being ideal police dogs and they were kind of like brought into the city to solve solve this urban problem of crime so um yeah that that, that slippage between the countryside and the city was um uh was quite prominent in some ways um another reason another um way of explaining what dogs were kind of seen to be um appropriate in the city is also linked to colonialism and the ways in which certain breeds like the Pekingese were kind of um, supposedly uh, discovered or rediscovered and rescued by, by Western breeders and then brought into the city. Um, that, that was also a major part of it. 
But I would say that even those dogs who you might think and were at the time were thought of being particularly urban, like like lap dogs, um, the critic, critics attacked them as well, saying that they were actually a danger because their female owners lavished too much attention on them, they spoiled them, um, which led to rabies and other problems as well. So I think basically like, yeah, there were lots of different breeds in the city and at certain times different critics came forward to attack a particular breed and then people came forward to defend them. And that was also including dogs without any breeds, um, so-called mongrels or, or cur dogs as they were sometimes called, who escaped pretty much um, uh, the attentions of dog breeders. They were also like massively prominent in the cities until uh, many of them were killed. Um, yeah, so I hope that answers the, the question. Oh yeah, I think so. Um, and Stephanie had a question about process here. So if we think about this oh, yeah. as, as a book, um, she wanted to know, was it always your intention to structure the book around these activities, these five activities that the dogs do, or did that, you know, come up um, as you were as you were doing the work and, and research? And how did you make that decision to use activities as the structuring? Um, yeah, there was one structure a long time back, which was much more chronological and another structure, I think that was around much more around the roles of dogs. So like, here's a chapter on police dogs, here's, here's a chapter on pet dogs. But I wanted to highlight the activities or, or the things that dogs do to really sort of make them more, more prominent within the book that, yeah, humans are responding to, to what dogs do. Um, and there's lots of debate around what those dogs do, attempts to manage what those dogs, what those dogs do. Um, at one point, I think I had, I started writing a chapter on dying and then I quickly realized actually this is about suffering. So dying became suffering. I think actually at one point I was gonna have a book about a chapter on feeling. And then I thought actually the whole book is about feeling. So then that, that chapter got sacked off and it sort of framed the whole book. Um, but, other, but yeah, I can't think of any other activities that I thought of. I, mean, I suppose you could have other things like working or um, you could also, I guess, like reproducing as well. Maybe that'd be better for the post 45 book on, on spaying and neutering. Um, but yeah, I sort of felt like five was a manageable, a manageable number and that these were the main ones that were, that were important. And I, I was wondering on this focus on the police dogs, because you just mentioned working, right? Well, police dogs are working, um, but you picked police dogs as the workers rather than the cart pulling dogs, for example. So why, why, what was your decision process behind that, that, that police dogs became the important workers to have in this book? Yeah, partly because there's been some more stuff written on um, dog carts, I can't remember the, the name, there's an article called The Day the Dogs Died in London or something like that, and they sort of appear in other, other books, particularly around rabies legislation. So my thought was on police dogs was that, um, apart from Neil Pemberton's work, there wasn't really much on police dogs in the pre-1914 period, so I wanted to, to shed a bit of light on that. I think also police dogs are interesting because there's so many transnational links, like Belgium is kind of a centre of police dogs and then that 
that gets picked up by American um, police dog advocates and also French ones as well. So it's kind of like quite a transnational link and dogs from Belgium are sent over to, to the US as well. And also um, police dogs are interesting because obviously crime is such, was such, or fears of crime rather were such a key part of urban life for many middle-class people um, in these cities. And police dogs also allow us to think about instincts, about biting, and also this, this idea of intelligence. Because I think, I think we need, I needed a chapter somewhere around ideas about canine intelligence and police dogs seem to be a way of kind of like tapping into those debates around whether or not dogs are intelligent, how much were they governed by instinct, what links do they have with, um, with human um, thinking and human intelligence as well. So about the working dogs then, is there um, this impression of value attached to this work as compared to, you know, the pet dogs that are there as companions? Uh, you know, I would say that today, you know, the dogs as companions is really uh, where a lot of people value them more so than the work that they do. But do you see or do you see them in the period you looked at in the Dogopolis that work was valued higher? Is there some shift there? Um, I think there was a shift in that the, um, the rise of the dog breed and the pet dog and all that went with it. I mean, the dogs, those pet dogs and the breed dogs, they were more expensive than other dogs. Um, owners, invested quite a lot of money in them whether that was vet fees or um, food or grooming or whatever so i think there was a worry that these beloved and expensive pet dogs were under threat um whether that was from dog thieves and um, philip howells wrote a bit about that amongst others or from um, street dogs worries that street dogs would fight attack damage pet dogs would try to um, uh, mate with with pet dogs as well fears around that um, and my sense is that yeah pet dogs are more expensive than working dogs so those working dogs might often have been um yeah cart dogs um who might be known by butchers or whoever to pull things around they weren't necessarily that expensive as far as i can tell um police dogs i mean some of those police dogs were some were rescue dogs, some were donated by owners, some were bought by, um, uh, there was someone who donated like Rockefeller, probably wasn't Rockefeller, but someone like that who donated to police dogs to um, the New York Dog Pound unit. Maybe, the, maybe it was the Paris one, so I'm getting confused. Um, but yeah, were, but I, I don't think, as far as I can tell those police dogs, I don't think they were as expensive as the, um, um, as the pet dogs. Now, the rise of the pet dog then, uh, was that a gendered thing? I mean, thinking about the, the owners of the dogs, uh, is there some dimension of that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think gender plays a big, a big role here. Um, and in particular, uh, female dog owners were associated with particular dogs like lap dogs as I, as I mentioned earlier and there were lots of critiques of these of these dogs and the way that their female owners treated them often well, 
almost exclusively written by um, by men, whether they were doctors or journalists. And psychiatrists, even, even um, uh, was it Dandis who, um, I can't remember his name again, he um, invented the diagnosis of like women basically loving their dogs too much and it's leading to all sorts of problems and, and so on. So yeah, I think there's a huge, huge um, gendered um, character around um, around pet dogs. I guess for um, for police dogs, there was a sort of culture of masculinity in which um, these police dogs were seen as kind of like propping up um, the, the policeman's um, security, making them feel stronger, maybe more manly when they were fighting it or confronting criminals. So yeah, I think there's other ways in which gender kind of seeps into this into this topic as well. All right, well, our time is up. So uh, I just want to thank you. So thanks to Chris Pearson for uh, presenting his book, Dogopolis, How Dogs and Humans Made Modern New York, London and Paris, which came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2021. So thanks to everyone in the audience also for great questions. Yeah, thank you very much for your questions and for listening and all the thoughts which will help me think about new projects and, and so on. Yeah, thanks very much. And hopefully we'll hear more from you about dogs in the future, uh, Chris. Um, yes, so that'll be great. And if anyone wants to get in touch about you know what's going on with dogs in Sweden or elsewhere, then please please drop me an email.